Chapter Eight of the Coral Island. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Coral Island by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Eight. The beauties of the bottom of the sea tempt Peterkin to dive. How he did it. More difficulties overcome. The water garden. Curious creatures of the sea. The tank. Candles missed very much, and the candle nut tree discovered. Wonderful account of Peterkin's first voyage. Cloth found growing on a tree. A plan projected, and arms prepared for offense and defense. A dreadful cry. Our encounter with the shark was the first great danger that had befallen us since landing on this island, and we felt very seriously affected by it especially when we considered that we had so often unwittingly incurred the same danger before while bathing. We were now forced to take to fishing again in the shallow water until we should succeed in constructing a raft. What troubled us most, however, was that we were compelled to forego our morning swimming excursions. We did, indeed, continue to enjoy our bath in the shallow water, but Jack and I found that one great source of our enjoyment was gone when we could no longer dive down among the beautiful coral groves at the bottom of the lagoon. We had come to be so fond of this exercise, and to take such an interest in watching the formations of coral and the gambols of the many beautiful fish among the forests of red and green seaweeds, that we had become quite familiar with the appearance of the fish and the localities that they chiefly haunted. We had also become expert divers, but we made it a rule never to stay long under water at a time. Jack told me that to do so often was bad for the lungs, and instead of affording us enjoyment would ere long do us a serious injury. So we never stayed at the bottom as long as we might have done, but came up frequently to the top for fresh air, and dived down again immediately. Sometimes, when Jack happened to be in a humorous mood, he would seat himself at the bottom of the sea on one of the brain corals, as if he were seated on a large paddock stool, and then make faces at me in order, if possible, to make me laugh under water. At first, when he took me unawares, he nearly succeeded, and I had to shoot to the surface in order to laugh. But afterwards I became aware of his intentions, and being naturally of a grave disposition, I had no difficulty in restraining myself. I used often to wonder how poor Peterkin would have liked to be with us, and he sometimes expressed much regret at being unable to join us. I used to do my best to gratify him, poor fellow, by relating all the wonders that we saw, but this, instead of satisfying, seemed only to whet his curiosity the more. So one day we prevailed on him to try to go down with us. But although a brave boy in every other way, Peterkin was very nervous in the water, and it was with difficulty we got him to consent to be taken down, for he could never have managed to push himself down to the bottom without assistance. But no sooner had we pulled him down a yard or so into the deep, clear water than he began to struggle and kick violently. So we were forced to let him go, when he rose out of the water like a cork, gave a loud gasp and a frightened roar, and struck out for the land with the utmost possible haste. 
Now all this pleasure we were to forego, and when we thought thereon Jack and I felt very much depressed in our spirits. I could see also that Peterkin grieved and sympathized with us, for when talking about this matter he refrained from jesting and bantering us upon it. As, however, a man's difficulties usually set him upon devising methods to overcome them, whereby he often discovers better things than those he may have lost, so this our difficulty induced us to think of searching for a large pool among the rocks, where the water should be deep enough for diving, yet so surrounded by rocks as to prevent sharks from getting at us. And such a pool we afterwards found which proved to be very much better than our most sanguine hopes anticipated. It was situated not more than ten minutes' walk from our camp, and was in the form of a small, deep bay or basin, the entrance to which, besides being narrow, was so shallow that no fish so large as a shark could get in, at least not unless he should be a remarkably thin one. Inside of this basin, which we called our water-garden, the coral formations were much more wonderful, and the seaweed plants far more lovely and vividly colored than in the lagoon itself. And the water was so clear and still that, although very deep, you could see the minutest object at the bottom. Besides this there was a ledge of rock which overhung the basin at its deepest part, from which we could dive pleasantly, and whereon Peterkin could sit and see not only all the wonders I had described to him, but also see Jack and me creeping amongst the marine shrubbery at the bottom, like, as he expressed it, two great white sea monsters. During these excursions of ours to the bottom of the sea we began to get an insight into the manners and customs of its inhabitants, and to make discoveries of wonderful things, the like of which we never before conceived. Among other things we were deeply interested with the operations of the little coral insect, which, I was informed by Jack, is supposed to have entirely constructed many of the numerous islands in the Pacific Ocean. And certainly when we considered the great reef which these insects had formed round the island on which we were cast, and observed their ceaseless activity in building their myriad cells, it did at first seem as if this might be true. But then again, when I looked at the mountains of the island, and reflected that there were thousands of such, many of them much higher, in the South Seas, I doubted that there must be some mistake here. But more of this hereafter. I also became much taken up with the manners and appearance of the anemones, and starfish, and crabs, and sea urchins, and such-like creatures, and was not content with watching those I saw during my dives in the water-garden but I must needs scoop out a hole in the coral rock close to it, which I filled with salt water, and stocked with sundry specimens of anemones and shellfish, in order to watch more closely how they were in the habit of passing their time. Our burning-glass also now became a great treasure to me, as it enabled me to magnify, and so to perceive more clearly, the forms and actions of these curious creatures of the deep. Having now got ourselves into a very comfortable condition, we began to talk of a project which we had long had in contemplation, namely, to travel entirely round the island, in order, first, 
to ascertain whether it contained any other production which might be useful to us, and second, to see whether there might be any place more convenient and suitable for our permanent residence than that on which we were now encamped. Not that we were in any degree dissatisfied with it. On the contrary, we entertained quite a home feeling to our bower and its neighborhood. But if a better place did exist, there was no reason why we should not make use of it. At any rate, it would be well to know of its existence. We had much earnest talk over this matter, but Jack proposed that, before undertaking such an excursion, we should supply ourselves with good defensive arms, for as we intended not only to go round all the shore, but to descend most of the valleys before returning home, we should be likely to meet in with, we would not say, dangers, but at least with everything that existed on the island, whatever that might be. Besides, said Jack, it won't do for us to live on coconuts and oysters always. No doubt they are very excellent in their way but I think a little animal food now and then would be agreeable as well as good for us, and as there are many small birds among the trees, some of which are probably very good to eat, I think it would be a capital plan to make bows and arrows with which we could easily knock them over. First rate, cried Peterkin. You will make the bows, Jack, and I'll try my hand at the arrows. The fact is, I'm quite tired of throwing stones at the birds." I began the very day we landed, I think, and have persevered up to the present time, but I've never hit anything yet. You forget, said I, you hit me one day on the shin. Ah, true, replied Peterkin, and a precious shindy you kicked up in consequence, but you were at least four yards away from the impotent paroquet I aimed at, so you can see what a horribly bad shot I am. But Jack, said I, you cannot make three bows and arrows before to-morrow, and would it not be a pity to waste time, now that we have made up our minds to go on this expedition? Suppose that you make one bow and arrow for yourself, and we can take our clubs. That's true, Ralph. The day is pretty far advanced, and I doubt I can make even one bow before dark. To be sure, I might work by firelight after the sun goes down." We had, up to this time, been in the habit of going to bed with the sun, as we had no pressing call to work the nights, and, indeed, our work during the day was usually hard enough, what between fishing and improving our bower, and diving in the water-garden, and rambling in the woods, so that when night came we were usually very glad to retire to our beds. But now that we had a desire to work at night we felt a wish for candles. "'Won't a good blazing fire give you light enough?' inquired Peterkin. "'Yes,' replied Jack, "'quite enough. But then it will give us a great deal more than enough of heat in this warm climate of ours.' "'True,' said Peterkin. "'I forgot that. It would roast us.' "'Well, as you're always doing that at any rate,' remarked Jack, "'we could scarcely call it a change. But the fact is, I've been thinking over this subject before.' There is a certain nut growing in these islands which is called the candle-nut, because the natives use it instead of candles, and I know all about it and how to prepare it for burning. Then why don't you do it? interrupted Peterkin. Why have you kept us in the dark for so long, you vile philosopher? Because, said Jack, 
I have not seen the tree yet, and I'm not sure that I should know either the tree or the nuts if I did see them. You see, I forget the description. Ah, that's just the way with me, said Peterkin with a deep sigh. I never could keep in my mind for half an hour the few descriptions I ever attempted to remember. The very first voyage I ever made was caused by my mistaking a description, or forgetting it, which is the same thing, and a horrible voyage it was. I had to fight with the captain the whole way out, and made the homeward voyage by swimming. "'Come, Peterkin,' said I, "'you can't get even me to believe that.' "'Perhaps not, but it's true, notwithstanding,' returned Peterkin, pretending to be hurt at my doubting his word. "'Let us hear how it happened,' said Jack, while a good-natured smile overspread his face. "'Well, you must know,' began Peterkin, "'that the very day before I went to sea I was greatly taken up with a game at hockey, which I was playing with my old schoolfellows for the last time before leaving them. You see, I was young then, Ralph,' Peterkin gazed in an abstracted and melancholy manner out to sea. Well, in the midst of the game, my uncle, who had taken all the bother and trouble of getting me bound prentice and rigged out, came and took me aside, and told me that he was called suddenly away from home, and would not be able to see me aboard as he had intended. However, said he, the captain knows you are coming, so that's not of much consequence, but as you'll have to find the ship yourself, you must remember her name and description. Do you hear, boy? I certainly did hear, but I'm afraid I did not understand, for my mind was so taken up with the game, which I saw my side was losing, that I began to grow impatient, and the moment my uncle finished his description of the ship and bade me good-bye, I bolted back to my game, with only the confused idea of three masts and a green-painted trefail and a gilt figurehead of Hercules with his club at the bow. Next day, I was so much cast down with everybody saying good-bye, and a lot of my female friends crying horribly over me, that I did not start for the harbor where the ship was lying among a thousand others till it was almost too late, so I had to run the whole way. When I reached the pier there were so many masts and so much confusion that I felt quite humble-bumbled in my faculties. Now, said I to myself, Peterkin, you're in a fix." Then I fancied I saw a gilt figurehead and three masts belonging to a ship just about to start, so I darted on board, but speedily jumped on shore again when I found that two of the masts belonged to another vessel and the figurehead to a third. At last I caught sight of what I made sure was it, a fine large vessel just casting off her moorings. The trefail was green. Three masts, yes, that must be it and the gilt figurehead of Hercules. To be sure, it had a three-pronged pitchfork in its hand instead of a club, but that might be my uncle's mistake, or perhaps Hercules sometimes varied his weapons. "'Cast off!' roared a voice from the quarter-deck. "'Hold on!' cried I, rushing frantically through the crowd. "'Hold on! Hold on!' repeated some of the bystanders, while the men at the ropes delayed for a minute. This threw the captain into a frightful rage, for some of his friends had come down to see him off, and having his orders contradicted so flatly was too much for him. However, the delay was sufficient. 
I took a race and a good leap. The ropes were cast off, the steam tug gave a puff, and we started. Suddenly the captain walks up to me. "'Where did you come from, you scamp, and what do you want here?' "'Please, sir,' said I, touching my cap, "'I'm your new prentice come aboard.' "'New prentice?' said he, stamping. "'I've got no new prentice. My boys are all aboard already. This is a trick, you young blackguard. You've run away, you have.' and the captain stamped about the deck and swore dreadfully, for you see the thought of having to stop the ship and lower a boat and lose half an hour all for the sake of sending a small boy ashore seemed to make him very angry. Besides, it was blowing fresh outside the harbor, so that to have let the steamer alongside to put me into it was no easy job. Just as we were passing the pierhead, where several boats were rowing into the harbor, the captain came up to me. "'You've run away, you blackguard,' he said, giving me a box on the ear. "'No, I haven't,' said I angrily, for the box was by no means a light one. "'Harky, boy, can you swim?' "'Yes, I can.' "'Then do it!' And seizing me by my trousers and the nape of my neck, he tossed me over the side into the sea. The fellows in the boats at the end of the pier backed their oars on seeing this, but observing that I could swim, they allowed me to make the best of my way to the pierhead. So you see, Ralph, that I really did swim my first homeward voyage.'